For the better part of two decades, as one presidential election ended and people began looking ahead to the next one, one question came up time and time again. Will he run again? And more often than not, for that two-decade period, the answer would come back that yes, Henry Clay was throwing his hat in the ring. Some years, he'd get further than others. But for all of his attempts at winning the highest office in the land, the gentleman from Kentucky would never earn the honor of being addressed as Mr. President. For this episode and the next one, we will look at Henry Clay's multiple attempts at the presidency beginning in the 1832 election and going through the 1848 election. And we'll try to understand just what went wrong each time for this man who dominated the American political scheme. I'm Jerry Landry and will be your host on this tour through the election history of the age of Jackson on this episode of the Harrison Podcast. I will go ahead and start this episode with an apology to our trusty audio editor, Andrew Foncook. As a fan of Henry Clay, I know working on an episode about how Clay fell flat on his face time and time again may be a bit disheartening. But like Clay, Andrew is nothing if not a professional and will persist on through Clay's pitfalls. If you'd like to commiserate with Andrew or have him work on your next audio project or podcast, please feel free to reach out to him at Andrew at Foncook. That's P-F-A-N-N. K-U-C-H-E dot com. With that said, it's on with the electioneering. It did not take long after the results of the election of 1828 were finalized that national Republican leaders decided that they would need someone besides John Quincy Adams to lead them to retake the White House in 1832. Though Adams would return to Washington upon his election to the House of Representatives in the midterm elections of 1830 and would prove to be a valuable voice in that body soon after taking his seat, Adams was seen as being too, quote, aloof and colorless, and national Republicans felt that their lackluster candidate, compared to the dynamic Andrew Jackson, had led to their defeat in the last election. Luckily for them, they had a vibrant character of their own, who already had a reputation for taking on Jackson and was quite interested in throwing his hat in the ring. Soon after leaving office, Clay was already making inquiries about what support he could expect in the next presidential election. With his focus on securing support in the West, as well as in manufacturing centers in New England and the middle states like Pennsylvania and New York. Like Van Buren had planned in the previous election, Clay realized that to win the presidency, he would need strong support in more than just one region of the country. And the West and the Northeast stood to benefit the most from his American system. Some were shocked at Clay's boldness when they received a letter from him discussing his prospects in 1832. But this was the new way of politics. If one wanted the presidency, then one had to make it happen. While testing the waters in other parts of the nation, Clay also took the pulse of the political climate in Kentucky by taking a three-week quote-unquote excursion around the state in September 1829, where he delivered speeches defending the achievements of the Adams administration and extolling the benefits of the American system were it to be fully implemented by some future leader. The trip left him feeling good about his chances in the West, though his supporters continued to have concerns about whether Clay could count on support in the region if Jackson were to run for re-election, with one correspondent asserting that, quote, no one can foresee what schism and defection may arise in the region in that scenario. However, that was outside of his control, and the best he could do at this point was to continue to gather information to prepare for any possibility. Now, he had to get a feel for how his prospects were in the region least attuned to his American system, the South. 
Clay carried on an extensive correspondence and collaboration with Senator Josiah Johnston of Louisiana and wrote to him at the end of December 1829 about his plans to head down the Mississippi River to visit New Orleans. From mid-January till mid-March 1830, Clay made his way south and spent the majority of his time in New Orleans where, quote, he went partying almost every night. He gambled at whist, danced with the ladies, gossiped about politics, drank more than he should, and generally had a smashing good time. Several of the ladies he met during this visit became lifelong friends. He was well-received everywhere he went, with even Jacksonians coming out to see Harry of the West in his role as elder statesman. And the warm reception he received convinced him more than ever before that the time was right for him to make another run for the White House. If he could win over Southerners, who had been the most opposed to the principles of the American system, then who could stand in his way? What he didn't consider in his estimation, though, was that the crowds coming out to see him didn't think of him as a potential candidate. They saw him as a retired leader, someone to be revered in nostalgia. Once he was an actual candidate in opposition to Jackson, it may be a different story. As Clay began to urge his friends to put his name forward as a candidate in their respective states, his own attention turned to the national stage as he tried to determine how best to position himself as equal opposition to President Jackson. Though Clay had spent the longest time of his political career and had had his greatest success in the House of Representatives, that success had only been due to his role as Speaker, and some national Republican leaders felt that Clay was at this point too divisive of a figure to win election as Speaker, should he re-enter that body. There was another possibility, though. Numerous friends began urging Clay to seek election to the U.S. Senate. Daniel Webster wrote to Clay that, quote, I should rejoice personally to meet you in the Senate. Everything valuable in the government is to be fought for, and we need your arm in the fight. Indeed, it made sense, as he would be one of 48, versus in the House being one of 213, and would be more likely to exert influence as a member in the smaller body than he could be expected to in the larger body without the power of the speakership behind him. Senator John J. Crittenden's seat was up for re-election, with the vote planned for the end of 1831. After Clay consented to the idea, Crittenden stepped aside so that Clay would have little opposition for the seat. As Crittenden wrote to his daughter about the decision, quote, There was no collision, no rivalry between us. All that was done was with my perfect accordance. I hope I shall always be found ready to do what becomes me. Thus, on November 9, 1831, the Kentucky State Legislature, by nine votes, chose Henry Clay as the next U.S. Senator from Kentucky. Despite the win, Clay was not enthusiastic about going into the Senate. He wrote shortly afterward that, quote, I go to my post with no anticipations of pleasure from occupying it. As Clay went to the Senate, he and other National Republican leaders had to start considering the role another new party would play in upcoming elections. Anti-Masonry had begun in western New York due to the disappearance of William Morgan of Batavia, New York, in 1826, after he published a book reputed to reveal the secrets of a Masonic order. It was presumed that he met his demise at the hands of the Masons, and this incident triggered a groundswell of backlash against Masonry. Quote, Masons were denounced as aristocrats who controlled business, government, and the law, and were not above depriving ordinary citizens of their basic rights in order to protect their special interests. 
This activist group soon developed into a regional political organization with New York political figures such as William H. Seward, Thurlow Weed, and Millard Fillmore, as well as Pennsylvania politician Thaddeus Stevens involved. And as 1832 approached, they aimed to take their agenda nationwide. On September 26, 1831, the Anti-Masonic Party held the nation's first national nominating convention in Baltimore, Maryland, where they nominated former U.S. Attorney General William Wirt, a former Mason, as their choice for president. Not only did the National Republicans need to think about the possibility that this party would draw from their strength, with Wirt himself previously having been thought, quote, zealously attached to the National Republicans, but they had to think about whether it would be in their best interest to hold a nominating convention of their own. Their decision to do so pointed to the National Convention becoming an important fixture in the next phase of American politics. On December 12, 1831, the National Republican Convention began in Baltimore, Maryland, with the party using the same facility that the Anti-Masons had a few months prior. Peter R. Livingston of New York made what is believed to be the first nominating speech in American history and put Henry Clay's name in for nomination. Clay was chosen unanimously, with John Sargent of Pennsylvania being chosen as his vice presidential running mate. Clay and his party had chosen to embrace a new form of politics, but the question remained as 1831 turned into 1832 as to whether that would be enough to beat the hero of New Orleans. Indeed, there was reason to believe that this show of unity behind Clay might be enough to thwart the Democrats as their party faced a split between Jackson and his vice president, John C. Calhoun. Though Calhoun had demurred from openly opposing Jackson, his supporters across the nation were working on his behalf prior to Jackson's announcement in January 1831 that he would seek a second term. After that point, the struggle became over who would be the vice presidential nominee. Jackson's favorite choice was Martin Van Buren, but various other contenders, including the current vice president, jockeyed for support. Now, at this time, Van Buren had been named as U.S. Minister to Great Britain in a recess appointment and had already made his way to London. When Congress came back into session, his name was sent to the Senate for confirmation. Clay, Webster, and other National Republicans believed that they saw a chance to score an early victory in the election year. They took to the floor of the Senate and denounced Van Buren as a party hack who had introduced the spoil system to national politics. When the vote was taken, it was split which meant that Vice President Calhoun had to cast the deciding vote. Calhoun gave Van Buren the thumbs down, and possibly some other hand gestures, and the nomination was rejected. This did prove to be a Pyrrhic victory, however, as it stirred up popular support for Van Buren, as the rejection was seen as being a political ploy, which it admittedly was, and Democrats were able to turn the attacks of playing political games with the nation's business back on the National Republicans. The other big issue that came up in that election cycle was the recharter of the Bank of the United States. Jackson's opposition to the bank was well known, and Clay started to wonder whether he could use the issue of the bank's recharter as a vehicle to promote the platform of the American system, as the bank did play a role in his conception of the future of the United States. The only problem was that the bank wasn't up for recharter until 1836. Rather than wait for the next presidential election to bring the issue up, Clay wrote to the bank's president, Nicholas Biddle, urging him to send a request to Congress to recharter the bank early, and Biddle complied, sending his petition to Congress in January 1832. 
Since Jackson's inauguration in 1829, Biddle had been attempting to gain the president's confidence and support, and he believed that ultimately Jackson and others would come to an understanding of the value of the bank to the nation. Biddle wrote to an associate in March 1831 that he felt, quote, that nine-tenths of the errors of men arise from their ignorance, and that the great security of all our institutions is in the power, the irresistible power, of truth. Little did Biddle understand at the time, though, that he was, in fact, the one who was ignorant, and that the power of the truth, as seen by Andrew Jackson, would ultimately win out. Clay would attempt to use his position in the Senate and the battle over the bank recharter, as well as a tariff bill and a bill on public land distribution, intended to win favor in the West, to buttress his presidential campaign and present himself as a stark contrast to Jackson. He delivered masterful speeches that were then published for circulation by his supporters. He maneuvered bills through committees and fended off efforts to sneak in legislation and amendments favorable to Jackson's professed views on the issues. Clay worked throughout the spring, but as May rolled around, he had little to show for his efforts except for being exhausted and suffering from worsening health. The tariff bill that finally passed Congress and went to Jackson for his signature ended up being a compromise measure that didn't please anyone and that Clay considered a defeat on his part. His land bill finally passed the Senate on July 3rd, but it was tabled until the next session soon after it reached the House. Oh, for 2. Finally, though, he had a breakthrough. The bank recharter bill had passed the Senate on June 11th, and on the same day as the Senate was passing the land bill, the recharter bill was passed by the House and sent on to Jackson for his signature, with Clay asserting that, quote, should Jackson veto it, I will veto him. A week later, surprise, surprise, Jackson vetoed the bank bill. Outlining in his veto message his arguments that the bank was an unconstitutional institution along with being a moral abomination. Jackson wrote in his message that, quote, It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. Distinctions in society will always exist under every just government. Equality of talents, of education, or of wealth cannot be produced by human institutions. There are no necessary evils in government. Its evils exist only in its abuses. If it, the government, would confine itself to equal protection and, as heaven does its reigns, shower its favors alike on the high and the low, the rich and the poor, it would be an unqualified blessing. In the act before me, there seems to be a wide and unnecessary departure from these just principles. With these words, Jackson proved that Henry Clay was not the only one who could use his public service for political gain. The Democratic press and electioneering machine would pick up this message of the bank and its supporters, i.e. Henry Clay and the National Republicans, as being the, quote, rich and powerful, seeking to unjustly bend the rules in their favor to the detriment of the common man, and would run with it throughout the summer and fall of 1832. Despite their best efforts, the National Republicans would not be able to take back control of the narrative, and thus Jackson would sail to victory with 688,242 popular votes to Clay's 473,462, and with an overwhelming 219 electoral votes to Clay's 49. 
The anti-Masonic candidate, William Wirt, would secure just over 101,000 popular votes and seven electoral votes. But even if the National Republicans had been more successful in their appeal to anti-Masons later in the campaign, it would have done little good and not changed the ultimate result. Jackson's share of the popular vote declined slightly, but he still felt that the result provided him with a mandate to continue to take on the Bank of the United States until it was completely destroyed, a goal that he would ultimately achieve. For Clay, however, the election represented a goal dashed yet again. Though 1832 would not bring victory for Clay, as noted by historian Donald Cole, the year was pivotal in U.S. political history as, quote, the election of 1832 fostered the growth of the two-party system by establishing party names, which would become indispensable elements of a national system. Without them, candidates would have continued to outweigh parties. Following the election, national Republican leaders had to consider what had went wrong in their approach and whether they had yet to establish a winning identity in the public eye. Indeed, even as early as the National Republican Convention in December 1831, some attendees had expressed their concerns that Clay's chances to win the presidency as the party's nominee, quote, were as hopeless as salvation without repentance. Though these concerns had been dismissed at the time, after the votes were counted, some began to rethink that assessment. The anti-Masonic party, though not yet strong nationally, was a major power in two key states, New York and Pennsylvania, both of which had gone for Jackson in 1832. Between the two, they carried 72 electoral votes. The anti-Masons had struck a chord with their, quote, populist, anti-elitist, and moralistic sentiments and their distrust of mainstream politicians. Jackson had won on a message of bringing down the elite and standing up for the common man. Meanwhile, the National Republicans had run a candidate that had been a leader in national politics since becoming Speaker in 1811, was viewed as being corrupt, and while asserting his belief that the anti-Masons should join the National Republicans, had also publicly denounced them. Maybe the time had come for the party to reorganize and go shopping for a better candidate. Meanwhile, Clay had to put his game face on and face another session of Congress when he thought that he would be returning to Washington, D.C. as the president-elect. Whether as a show of bravado or a genuine belief, he wrote to an associate on November 3rd that, quote, I have great hopes and strong confidence in the defeat of General Jackson. By the 17th, however, he was writing another associate that, quote, the dark cloud which had been so long suspended over our devoted country instead of being dispelled, as we had fondly hoped it would be, has become more dense, more menacing, more alarming. Whether we shall ever see light and law and liberty again is very questionable. By January 17th, he was questioning the very foundations of the nation as he wrote to another correspondent that, quote, As to politics, we have no fact, no future. After 44 years of existence under the present Constitution, what single principle is fixed? The bank? No. Internal improvements? No. The tariff? No. Who is to interpret the Constitution? No. We are as much afloat at sea as the day when the Constitution went into operation. There is nothing certain but that the will of Andrew Jackson is to govern, and that will fluctuates with the change of every pen which gives expression to it. 
What would ultimately snap Clay out of this period of angst was what would come to be known as the nullification crisis. Following the passage of the Tariff of 1832, the government of South Carolina decided that they did not like the rates set by this new tariff and thus called for a convention, which, going along with the constitutional argument advanced by John C. Calhoun, passed an ordinance of nullification on November 19th, which not only said that the Tariff of 1832 was not valid or binding in the state of South Carolina as of February 1st of the coming year, but also nullified the previous tariff law as well and warned that if the federal government attempted to enforce either tariff law in South Carolina, then the state would consider the bonds between it and the federal government dissolved, quote, and will forthwith proceed to organize a separate government. This was a direct challenge to federal authority, and Andrew Jackson would have none of it. He issued a proclamation on December 10th warning the citizens of South Carolina that, quote, disunion by armed force is treason, and that if they were willing to take that step, quote, on the heads of the instigators of the act be the dreadful consequences. On their heads be the dishonor, but on yours may fall the punishment. In December, the South Carolina state government would decide to send John C. Calhoun, who was already slated to leave the vice presidency a few months hence anyway, and who opted to resign early, to be the voice of the state in the Senate. Thus, the nation would see the trio that would come to be known as America's great triumvirate meet in the Senate chamber as colleagues for the first time in 1833. However they proceeded, there would be risk for them all. But they did at least agree that Jacksonianism, as it stood, would have to come to an end. First up, though, they would have to ensure that there was still a nation to fight for before they could deal with combating Jackson's policies and legacies. We'll pick up from there next time on an episode I'd like to call, With Friends Like These, Clay and the Whig Party. Until then, should you like to reach out to me, I'm available via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And my handle on Facebook and Twitter is also Harrison Podcast. Again, all one word. Source information for this episode, along with past episodes, can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. And the podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and a host of other places if you're not already subscribed at one of those places already. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time.